Good evening, dummies. After the night we had last night, what a fantastic night. It was wonderful to be up with you in the wee hours of the morning. Almost up till 2.30, my wife and I were. We couldn't sleep afterwards. We were like night before Christmas. Yes, I called you dummies. I'll explain what dummies is. Don't take offense. That's not what you think it is. I'll tell you after we do the intro. Tonight, what are we talking about? Well, it's going to be about Glenn Youngkin. The race card up their sleeve. We're going to call out what has been happening and why the Democrats literally got rolled over in Virginia and other places last night. It was a huge message sent to the Liberal Party, and we're going to talk about it tonight. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for being with me. Stay tuned. I will be right back. I'll explain what Dummies is. We'll get into the show, and I will introduce myself so you know me. I'll be right back. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Well, it'll be fun. It's nice to see so many people live. Thank you for everyone on live. Wonderful to have you here tonight. Who am I? What do I do? My name is Matthew Spear. I'm the host of Don't Unfriend Me. I created this about a year ago. Why? Because I was sick and tired of just listening and texting and never having anyone say, all right, well, let's talk a little more. They would get their barbs in. I would get my barbs in and ultimately nothing would be accomplished. We hope that that changes with the show. What are dummies and why do I call you a dummy? It's not an insult. The Dummies are the Don't Unfriend Me's. You'll see shirts and hats and everything else that we have for sale if you go to don'tunfriendme.com and click on the shop link. And you can be a dummy too. Just don't be a dum-dum. Dum-dums are not good. Dummies are pretty easy to learn and remember. Is that you, God? It's me, Margaret. What the heck was that? Alien Invasion. Please do me a favor and like, share, and subscribe if you would not mind. It's very simple. If you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitch, if you're on Rumble, if you're on a podcast, doesn't matter wherever you're watching me or purviewing for your pleasure, please give me a like, share, and subscribe. It keeps the lights on. And with no further ado, let's get to the show. Remember, for the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to be focused strictly on the show, and then I will get to all the dummies and all your questions. That's the one thing you can always get here. I will ensure no matter what you say or how bad it is, I will repeat it. I sometimes censor. Race card up their sleeve. Last night, Virginia came together with no equivocation, and they repudiated identity politics completely. Virginia was one of the most blue territories in the United States yesterday, and one monumental election changed all of that. In the air for the last year, our country felt the pain of division and sickness, They uh, either stolen or prophetic results, and most importantly, a surge of ulterior motives for our once great country. Virginia resembled California or Oregon more than it did the Commonwealth or the Don't Tread on Me state. The Old Dominion became the new totalitarian, and on one chilly November night, Virginia, no America, stood in open defiance and said, we will not go gently into that good night. Over the last year, we have seen a steady decline in our progress as a nation. We have reverted back into identity politics and racial division. 
powered by the leftist movement like the 1619 Project, white privilege, and critical race theory. And over the last two decades, we have witnessed our media, Hollywood, the arts, and colleges grow like a plague towards censorship, aggressive actions, and most importantly, a forced redirection into a revision of facts that we haven't seen since the post-Civil War era. The United Daughters of the Confederacy was established in 1894 with a mission to glorify and vindicate the lost cause of the South. They were amazingly successful in shaping a narrative to their benefit. Between the 1890s and 1950s, they erected more than 700 markers honoring Confederate veterans. Their most intense efforts focused on the education of white children. Through the UDC, they didn't invent the lost cause ideology, but they were deeply involved in the spreading of the myth, which simultaneously contends the Confederacy wasn't fighting to keep black people enslaved, while also suggesting slavery was actually pretty good for everyone involved. The lost cause proponents typically praised the traditional culture of honor and chivalry of the antebellum South. They argue that enslaved people were treated well and deny that their condition was a central cause of the war, contrary to the statements made by Confederate leaders, such as the Cornerstone speech. Instead, they view the war as a defense of states' rights to protect their agrarian economy against northern aggression, concerns which were seemingly validated during the post-war Reconstruction era day by exploitative carpetbaggers. The Union victory is thus explained as the result of its greater size and industrial wealth, while the Confederate side is portrayed as having greater morality and military skill. In other words, it's a propaganda viewpoint based in damage control and a feeble attempt to regain some semblance of its power. These practices are still around today, and they are not the first in our history. The race card is a particular loathsome saying that is said to be used to silence the opponents of racism and prejudice, predominantly targeted towards African Americans. This is misdirection at its finest. Let's dive into the entomology of the term race card. Media, political campaigns, and organizations have been outraged by the concept of playing the race card, while the general public has reacted to it with exasperation or disbelief or sheer indifference. What does it mean, playing the race card? Figuratively, the reference is made to the power of play in a card game in which a trump card may be used to gain an advantage. Wikipedia, which you should never go to, defines it as an idiomatic phrase referring to an allegation raised against a person who has brought the issue of race or racism into a debate, perhaps to obfuscate the matter. The misdirection of the entire concept is what white people well, that they have the disposition that any resistance to societal norms from African Americans or expectation of equal treatment is simply the race card being played. This is a bold-faced fallacy and works as misdirection inside another misdirection. Confused? Let me explain. Let's assume for a moment that the term race card isn't relevant in today's society. Let's all assume that there isn't systemic racism. That individual racism exists, but from a perspective based on policy or law, racism isn't condoned, so it is unable to be addressed from a collective standpoint. Do you follow? So now inequity is brought into the equation. 
equity is as follows. Racial equity is about applying justice and a little bit of common sense to a system that's been out of balance. When a system is out of balance, people of color feel the impacts most acutely. But to be clear, an imbalanced system makes all of us pay. So in other words, we would have to address specific policy or laws that make the system ill-effective or broken. When that can't be established, we lean on common sense and the perception of imbalance without fact, but with supposition and speculation, a feeling without any reasoning, if you will. If this holds true, then the race card, white privilege or CRT, is used to bring anecdotal emotional evidence to the forefront over fact and or proof of systemic racism. When this implied bias is then put into the ether, it becomes the responsibility of America to solve a problem that is unsolvable, because there is no basis for the implication to be solved. This is when misdirection now comes to play, when the accused begin to challenge these philosophies from the supposed oppressed. The immediate accusation is that we are using our white privilege, claiming that white feels, the race, uh, feels that the race card is being played, or that we are white-splaining. The trap is in the conversation itself. It's very similar to a lawyer who leads a witness into a logical fallacy trap. This is called the rhetorical trick or loaded question of asking something that cannot be answered without admitting a presumption that, that may be false. An example would be, do you still beat your wife? If you answer yes, you're guilty. If you say no, then the inquisitor can simply ask, so you stopped? This is the conundrum with the woke philosophies in today's society. How do you overcome your racist viewpoints? How do you recognize your own white privilege? Have you stopped white-splaining yet? This is the misdirection that is ever-present in this new culture of wokeism. There's no escape, because the assumption of guilt is implied without a conversation, and the burden of proof is vacant in the presumptive argument. The race card doesn't exist without the preconceived notion that it ever had been there in the first place. Now, the simple fact is that this denigrating spread has infiltrated our K-12 schools, and it isn't the conversation or argument that is terrifying America. It is simply the fact that no conversation is allowed to take place at all without the moniker being applied that the implication asserts itself in the first place. This is the Saul Alinsky playbook, personified, and it's being masterfully recreated across the country by radicals. For Alinsky, organizing is the process of highlighting what is wrong and convincing people they can actually do something about it. The two are linked. If people feel they don't have the power to change a bad situation, they stop thinking about it. And according to Alinsky, the organizer, especially a paid organizer from outside, must first overcome suspicion and establish credibility. Next, the organizer must begin the task of agitating, rubbing resentments, fanning hostilities, and searching out controversy. This is necessary to get people to participate, and an organizer has to attack apathy and disturb the prevailing patterns of complacent community and the life where people have simply come to accept a bad situation. Alinsky would say the first step in community organization is community disorganization. Through a process combining hope and resentment, the organizers try to create a mass army that brings in as many recruits as possible from local organizations, churches, services groups, labor unions, corner gangs, and individuals. 
Rule number one, power is not only what you have, but what an opponent thinks you have. If your organization is small, hide your numbers in the dark and raise a din that will make everyone think you have many more people than you do. Rule number two, never go outside the experience of your people. The result is confusion, fear, and retreat. Rule number three, whenever possible, go outside the experience of an opponent. Here you want to cause confusion, fear, and retreat. Rule number four, make opponents live up to their own book of rules. You can kill them with this, for they can no more obey their own rules than the Christian church can live up to Christianity. Rule five, ridicule is a man's most potent weapon. It's hard to counterattack ridicule, and it infuriates the opposition, which then reacts to your advantage. Rule six, a good tactic is one your people enjoy. If your people aren't having a ball doing it, there's something very wrong with the tactic. Rule seven, a tactic that drags on for too long becomes a drag. Commitment may become ritualistic as people turn to other issues. Rule eight, keep the pressure on. Use different tactics and actions and use all of the events of the period for your purpose. The major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. It is this that will cause the opposition to react to your advantage. Rule 9. The threat is more terrifying than the thing itself. When Alinsky leaked word that large numbers of poor people were going to tie up the washrooms of O'Hare Airport in Chicago, city authorities quickly agreed to act on a long-standing commitment to a ghetto organization. They imagined the mayhem as thousands of passengers poured off the airplanes to discover every washroom occupied. Then they imagined the international embarrassment and the damage to the city's reputation. Sound familiar? Rule 10, the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. Avoid being trapped by an opponent or an interviewer who says, okay, what would you do? Rule 11, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, polarize it. Don't try to attack abstract corporations or bureaucracies. Identify responsible individuals. Ignore attempts to shift or spread the blame. These rules, according to Alinsky, are the main job of the organizer is to bait an opponent into reacting. The enemy properly goaded and guided in this reaction will be your major strength. Now that you have heard this in context, does this not resonate with what we are seeing today in every leftist ideology? Of course it does. But there is one thing that Alinsky fails to compensate for, the one thing that destroys their evil designs to manipulate through conjecture and fear, the American spirit. The Citizen's Handbook from Alinsky is more like the Anarchist Cookbook. It fails to take into account that there are superseding entities that provide the dragon's bane to his leftist thinking. The Constitution, the Electorate, the Articles, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration, and most importantly, the stubbornness of the patriots of this country and their never-ending supply of only tolerating so much bullshit before they unleash full fury of Mama and Papa Bear. The Commonwealth has spoken and the country is now taking up the mantra that critical race theory and socialist indoctrination is not acceptable for our future. Progressives were absolutely brutalized last night in Oregon and Minnesota. The defund the police initiative spearheaded by leftists like Ilhan Omar went down in flames almost as large as the flames that nearly destroyed their own cities set by their own citizens. 
Not only did Virginia turn red again by taking back the House, the gubernatorial, the attorney general and assistant attorney general, and the lieutenant governor position was filled by an African-American woman and and is a retired Marine. How much further from the narrative can we possibly go? Well, we could look at the liberal stronghold of New Jersey that was at a dead heat with a Republican governor candidate literally on the precipice of shocking the Garden State. It fell short in the end. But the Toms River Township went completely red, sweeping all seven seats. The votes are in, and America is no longer allowing Democratic antics to decide the direction of our country. The tired politics of sexual assault claims that every white candidate is racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, homophobic is no longer working. The president is as low as 42% in most polls, and his disapproval rating is 51%, with over 70% of the country feeling that the country is going in the wrong direction. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. With the Democrats relying on wishful thinking and vague threats to fulfill their biggest campaign promises, didn't Joe Biden win the presidency with a 7 million vote popular majority? Didn't Democrats win both houses of Congress? If there's anything more unnerving and disheartening than how so many of the Democrats' attempts to fight back are grounded in complete delusion or futility. The core problem Democrats face is that almost all politics in their platform is now national. They are one party facing electoral disaster, and they will rise or fall together. Democrats cannot escape one another, no matter how they might try. To me, This is the most important part. The Democratic Party is an institution that is composed at the top of a narrow group of people and that is afflicted by many of their blind spots. For the Democratic Party to chart any course out of this peril it faces, it must first accept that in the minds of most Americans, it is a party, a singular entity. And before that party can shape what voters think, it must find a way to see itself clearly and act collectively in all of our interests. The Democratic Party has stated clearly that their policies are for a particular group of people, that the white men and women of this country are not wanted unless they adopt a contrarian self-belief that they are inherently racist and can never talk about it, acknowledge it, or apologize for it, or more importantly, deny its existence. They simply have to become a traitor to their own race in so many words, words that they use. They're not mine. But the eight stages to overcoming your own whiteness says this, where all white people fall into white supremacist category and need to move to the white traitor and white abolitionist column in order to absolve themselves of their white skin. These are the things discussed in insane asylums or written by tyrannical rulers like the Nazis or the KKK. How does this reflect the country? The truth is it doesn't. America has spoken, and the race card is as dead as the other tropes the left have cradled for the last 50 years. People are waking up to their failed policy and constant lies at the expense of the most destitute and downtrodden. The Republicans may not have all the answers, but we are not used car salesmen either. We are open about hard work and dedication to self-development. That not everyone will cross the finish line at the same time, but everyone deserves a chance to run the race. America is at the table And we have went all in on a heart's flush against trip aces. For too long, we have seen the other ace played four hands back on the river or failed to recall the single ace we folded on 4th Street. But yet somehow the other side goes all in and represents a monster of quad aces. We deny, we resist. And when the cards are shown and their hand is good, 
We stay quiet. We accept defeat and simply talk to ourselves into looking towards the next hand. No more. The aces up the sleeve have all run dry, and we need to call them for what they are. Last night, we went all in on red and won a huge pot. We got the liberals to bluff and muck their hand on one of the largest pots of the night, chopping a leg out from under them in 2022 and beyond. Now is not the time to be meek. We do not count our chips. There is more to do and plenty of stacks to win, but this has allowed us to believe again in our process that the electoral is a game worth playing, that the house doesn't always win. Celebrate with a coy smile and a tip of the hat because more aces will be played and we need to see where and when they will appear before our unethical and deceptive opponent plays them. The color of the cards matter little in a game. A spade is always a spade. A club will always be blunt. Diamonds are always forever. But hearts are all red for a reason, just like Virginia. And if the poker gods allow, the rest of the country soon to follow. Folks, thank you so much for my show, watching the show and being a part of it. Dummies, I'll get back to you in a second. We will be done and I will join you after this quick message. Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. Veterans commit suicide, 22 a day. It is way too many. Please reach out to a veteran. Veteran, veteran, veteran. Holy moly. It's kind of like a Padawan. Veteran, as soon as you possibly can, especially if you haven't talked to them in a while. Christmas, the holidays are always tough for vets. Reach out, make that phone call. If you can't, you can talk to me. I will help you make it. Or you can go to donutfriendly.com. Click on the VCL link free of charge. It's anonymous. It's free. And if you are a civilian and not a veteran, it's okay. They will not turn you away. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, anxiety, depression are all very real and nothing to be ashamed of. Please help a vet. Folks, thank you so much. If you would do me one last favor to please like, share, and subscribe on all my social channels. I'm on at 8.30 Eastern every night, Monday through Friday, and uh, we would love to talk to you. So thanks, dummies, for stopping on by. I will see you tomorrow. 